Today is a good day for justice. And today is a good day for Minnesota. Well, that's probably a good day for America, too. I'll take it. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Hey there. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul, where it is always a good day, on AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites. Blanketing Planet Earth. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. That was Minnesota Governor Tim Walls at the top of the show there, saying that it was both a good day for justice and a good day for Minnesota. Uh, on Friday, and he was and is right to uh, help tell this story. I need to go back, well, uh, I think it was a week or two ago on a Green News report, Desi Doyen. Was this back from the Minnesota story about two weeks ago, if I recall, uh, concerning the law that was passed by the state legislature and signed by Democratic Governor Tim Waltz to mandate that uh, the state would reach 100% carbon-free electricity by 2040, if I remember. Yep. And now, well, now a neighboring state is trying to sue it out of them (laughs) somehow. More on that specifically a little bit later in this hour on our 1300th episode of the Green News Report. Yeah, pretty 13, shocking. 1,300 episodes, Des. <laughs> and yet we're still here, and we haven't fixed the environment yet. And I bet some of our listeners have heard all 1,300 episodes. Oh, bless their hearts. Uh, yeah, we're, we're our, and our apologies for that. In any event, <laughs> uh, the reason that such a law was possible in Minnesota in the first place is only because last year, in the November midterms, for the first time in nearly a decade, voters in the land of a thousand lakes... The North Star State, the Gopher State, if you're really reaching, they elected a Democratic trifecta for uh, for their state government, a Democratic governor with a Democratic majority state house and Senate. 
or a DFL majority, that's Democratic Farmer Labor uh, majority House and Senate. But I'm trying to translate this story to the rest of America. So please forgive me, uh, those who live in, in, in Minnesota. Uh, others may not understand that whole DFL thing. But anyway. As noted, uh, more on, on that specific law concerning carbon-free electricity in a little bit. But what else did that uh, Democratic DFL majority bring in the state after November? Well, uh, among other things, as the Star Tribune reported on the last day of January, Governor Tim Walz signed legislation adding a, quote, fundamental right to abortion in state law. The first proposal in an expansive agenda moving the moving at the state capitol to solidify Minnesota's status as a safe haven for the procedure. Walt said the message that we're sending to Minnesota today is very clear. Your rights are protected in this state. You have the right to make your own decisions about your health, your family and your life. Well, that sounds like freedom to me. But, of course, don't tell Republicans who are being told by folks like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and Texas Governor Greg Abbott and disgraced former President Donald Trump and a whole bunch of others that taking away their freedoms is somehow actually freedom. Minnesota Democrats, meanwhile, fast-tracked this bill following the stolen, packed, and corrupted far-right U.S. Supreme Court's reversal of Roe v. Wade last summer. That struck down nearly 50 years of federal constitutional protection for abortion. Walls' signature one month into the legislative session at the end of January made Minnesota the 16th state to spell out a right to abortion in state law. And it was the first state to codify those protections into law since Roe was overturned last year. As Desi Doyen likes to say, elections matter. Elections have consequences. Correct. Democrats credited their newfound majorities in both chambers of the state legislature at the time with uh, the fury from voters last fall over the high court's decision to overturn Roe and to take away those constitutional freedoms, according to the Star Tribune. The proposal faced intense backlash, of course, from abortion opponents and Republican legislators and others who, I guess, hate freedom, who have called the policy, quote, extreme and encouraged Waltz to veto the bill. He did not. The new law won't change the reality, however, for abortion providers in Minnesota, where access is already protected by a 1995 state Supreme Court ruling. But Democrats said that Roe's demise showed how access could vanish at the hands of future judges. Well, now it's also encoded into state law. Known as the Protect Reproductive Options Act, the law says that every individual who becomes pregnant has a fundamental right, quote, to continue the pregnancy and give birth or obtain an abortion. It also protects rights to contraception, sterilization, family planning and counseling while prohibiting local governments from enacting their own ordinance uh, ordinances to restrict abortion access. The Senate uh, in Minnesota passed that bill on a 34 to 33 
party line vote. Just one vote made the difference, while all Republicans and one Democrat voted against the bill in the state house. It was very close. But guess what? That's how democracy works. It was passed by both Democratic majority chambers and it was signed by the Democratic governor. Had any of those uh, groups, whether the governor or either chamber of the uh, state legislature, been Republican, that measure would almost certainly have been blocked, even though. Uh, as we reported recently, a, a major uh, last week, I think a major new study finds that a majority of voters in every single state in the union, all 50 of them, oppose the overturning of Roe v. Wade by the stolen, packed and corrupted U.S. Supreme Court. So no matter how much, uh, you know, you, you may hear in the corporate media, oh, Democrats are in favor of, uh, you know, abortion rights. Republicans are against them. No, not really. It's not 50-50. It's not even close. A majority of Americans believe in reproductive freedoms. And in fact, a majority in all 50 states and the District of Columbia, according to that PRRI survey, opposed the uh, overturning of Roe. Now, the uh, new Minnesota law was set to be the first in a series of bills moving at the Capitol at the time, uh, at the end of January there, to dramatically reshape what Minnesota law says about abortion access while also protecting people who travel to the state to seek an abortion. So, yes, elections and voting matter. They have real consequences. Uh, whether it's for uh, reproductive freedoms, for clean, renewable, livable energy for the people of Minnesota. And, uh, you know, not just for the reproductive freedoms of people in Minnesota, but those who may need to travel there for their own reproductive freedoms. And late last week, elections and voting uh, had consequences for voting rights themselves for tens of thousands of Minnesotans. On Friday, and this is what you heard uh, the governor uh, noting at the top of the show there, Democratic Governor Tim Walz signed a bill that will restore the voting rights of thousands, tens of thousands of convicted felons in the state this summer after they leave prison instead of after they complete parole. In other words, the measure will abolish felony voter disenfranchisement for citizens on parole or on probation, as Daily Coast election expert Stephen Wolf describes the measure. After the state Supreme Court in Minnesota recently declined to strike down this prohibition on basic rights, as the governor noted in a tweet, quote, today I signed a bill into law restoring voting rights for over 55,000 formerly incarcerated people. The largest expansion of voting rights in Minnesota in half a century, he said. Minnesota will continue to lead in the fight to keep our elections safe, free and fair for all. That law will go into effect on July 1, and it will allow formerly incarcerated felons to vote from that day forward. The passage of the bill followed several years of legal challenges to the constitutionality of the state's former law, which prohibited people who were on felony supervision or probation from voting, even if their prison term had been completed 
or they had never even spent a day in prison. They were still not allowed to vote. In 2019, the American Civil Liberties Union of Minnesota challenged that law, arguing that Minnesota's Constitution guaranteed someone's right to vote automatically once they were, were released from jail. The law, which had prevented more than 50,000 Minnesotans from voting, also, as it turns out, you'll be shocked to learn, disproportionately affected people of color, according to the ACLU. Bingo, that's the way it always seems to work. Minnesota's Supreme Court then, in February uh, of this year, kicked the issue back to the state legislature, which had been considering the Restore the Vote bill since early January. That would be, of course, when Democrats took over the state Senate. Following passage of the new law, only those who are currently incarcerated for a felony conviction, that's about 9,000 people, will remain banned from voting in Minnesota. And by the way, if you ask me, and nobody did, but if you ask me, those people, those 9,000, should also be allowed to vote as well. Yes, even from jail as they are allowed in states like Vermont, for instance, especially since those in jail arguably are the most affected by uh, laws that are passed by the state, good or bad laws passed by the uh, legislatures and signed by the governors. Nonetheless, for now, a very encouraging move in the right direction. The, as far as I'm concerned, not everything, not perfect, but you know, 55,000 uh, potential new voters is nothing to sneeze at. Yeah, and it shows that when you allow the people to vote, the people will vote in people who will actually protect rights, like in Minnesota. Yep. If you notice that this trifecta did not strip anyone of their rights nope. or their bodily autonomy, this nope. trifecta did not try to ban any books or censor what teachers can teach, <laughs> yep. they're mm -hmm. actually trying to reduce pollution and you know, help their citizens not get sick from fossil fuel pollution. So these are some things that happen when people are allowed to vote. This is just crazy talk. I don't know where you're coming up with these ideas, Des. Anyway, as as Wolf reports, uh, this legislation now uh, brings Minnesota into line with about two dozen other states that do not disenfranchise anyone after prison or at all. Again, Vermont. I think there's another state as well. I want is it Maine? I, well, I don't want to get anyone in trouble, but. Definitely Vermont. Anyway, uh, this is uh, now a, a, co a majority of the country's population that now allows this. The rest of the nation, come on, let's get to it, folks. It was uh, passed, by the way, with the support of every Democrat and a handful of Republicans in the Minnesota state legislature. Well done. This voting rights expansion is one of several that Democrats are aiming to pass this year after regaining full control over state government in the 2022 elections for the first time in eight years. And of course, if almost everyone in the state is actually allowed to vote, well, it may be much longer than eight years before Republicans take back control of either house uh, of the state legislature or the governor's mansion. But we shall see. And speaking of the importance of elections on the state level, specifically the uh, importance of the 2022 election and, yes, some 2023 special elections that followed it, got a bit of a follow up on a story that we've been covering intermittently since before the holiday break. 
at the end of last year. Some good news out of Pennsylvania that we're uh, just able to catch up with today. Philadelphia State Rep Joanna McClinton last week became the first woman to serve as Speaker of the Pennsylvania House, ascending to the chamber's top position on the strength of a fresh one-vote Democratic majority in the House. McClinton said after being sworn in, quote, it was almost 250 years before a woman could stand at this desk, not just to give a prayer, but to get the gavel. The leadership reshuffling came nearly two months after Democratic Rep. Mark Rosie became the surprise choice for Speaker. How did that happen before ultimately leading to what happened last week as McClinton was finally put into this position? Well, uh, if you've been paying close attention to our coverage over the past, I think, almost three months now, in the midterms, Last November, so I guess that would be four months at least, uh, last November, Democrats flipped uh, a huge number of seats in the State House. They flipped a net of 12 seats in the Pennsylvania State House and thus retook the majority uh, control of that body by the narrowest of possible margins after more than a decade. They took control of it by one single seat. But that one seat majority quickly evaporated, actually like immediately evaporated, even as soon as they won it, at least on paper, because after the election, there were two elected Democrats uh, last November who immediately moved on to other jobs that they had been elected to on the very same ballot. One became a U.S. congressman, The other became the state's lieutenant governor. And then a House member who had just won election in November suddenly died, surprisingly, out of nowhere, placing everything, including Joanna McClinton's uh, likely ascension to the House Speaker into this sort of uh, bizarre holding pattern of sorts. Limbo, I would call it. Where Republicans at the time in December were they were claiming that they had at least a temporary majority and therefore the right to determine when the special elections to fill those three Democratic held seats would uh, would take place. And you'll never guess when they decided those Democratic special elections should be held as far into the future as legally possible. Not the normal time when they're normally held. Just right. push them off. Really it could far. have been done right at the beginning of February. But no, they said it's going to. I think they wanted the end of, I don't know when it was, March, April, May, whatever, however late it could possibly be. Meanwhile, at the same time, uh, uh, State Rep McClinton actually attempted to take control of the House, arguing that Democrats had actually won it. And she tried to declare the elections for the earliest the special elections for the earliest possible dates uh, at the beginning of February. But in fact, control by the Democrats of the House in Pennsylvania did actually did not actually become effective until their candidates eventually won all three of those special elections 
earlier last month. In the meantime, prior to that, a, a group of Democrats and a rump group of Republicans in the state house actually selected, it was kind of a surprise to everybody, but they selected Democrat Mark Rosie to be an independent speaker in the meantime as all of this was sorted out. And last Tuesday, Rosie announced Maybe it's Rotzi. I don't know. R-O-Z-Z-I. Anyway, uh, he announced that he was willingly now stepping aside after being speaker since January 3rd. But he is remaining a House member. He said, quote, I will not allow the allure of power or the trappings of office to keep me from doing what is right. Good for him. He declared uh, this in, in floor remarks, adding, I was not elected by the people for this office and I will not stand in the way of the woman who was. He called um, a Clinton quote, one of the most intelligent and compassionate women I have met in politics. So, yeah, good for him. He did do the right thing. Imagine that. How often do you hear that? People willingly giving up power simply because it's the right thing to do. In uh, in nominating uh, McClinton, Rep. Malcolm, Malcolm Kenyatta noted that uh, she is also the second African-American to serve as speaker after the late speaker Leroy Irvis, who held that position in the late 1970s. But McClinton is the first female African-American in the role. She had been the Democratic floor leader since 2020, and she was also the first woman to hold that position in speaking to the need for Democrats now finally ensconced in the majority, if just by one single vote, the need to create new rules for how the chamber will will now operate now that it's finally been fully taken back from Republicans. Well, McClinton vowed that the House will, quote, have rules that protect women, people of color, LGBTQIA+, because this is Pennsylvania, where democracy was born. I like it. <laughs> uh, and congratulations to the uh, new House Speaker in the Keystone State. And thanks to voters for turning out last November to elect a Democratic House. That was a bit of a surprise. And a new Democratic governor. That would be Josh Shapiro. Not to mention new uh, Democratic U.S. Senator John Fetterman, who remains hospitalized for the moment, dealing with depression issues as the uh, state Senate, for now anyway, in Pennsylvania, remains in GOP control. And another follow-up today to a story that we've been covering on and off for for even longer than the Pennsylvania story. This one is about democracy and accountability, two of our favorite topics to cover <laughs> on this program. True. Remember Tina Peters? She is the uh, former, now disgraced, and indicted multiple times Mesa County, Colorado County clerk. Tina Peters, maybe this will jog your memory of of that time that Tina Peters refused to turn over her iPad to two law enforcement officials. Uh, actually, more. Uh, it was first uh, folks from the state prosecutor's office. Then they had to call in law enforcement uh, cops who had a, a, a they had a subpoena to obtain it from her. But uh, she was in the lobby of this restaurant or something at the time. She refused to give it up. 
And uh, here she is being detained for refusing, at least part of it, for refusing to hand over that iPad at the time. Let go of me! Let go of me! Let go of me! So can can you imagine? Uh, now let's see. I'll just give you a guess. Just from hearing the audio, any idea if Tina Peters is white or black? Just based on what she's saying there. Do you suppose things would have gone so well had that been a black woman speaking that way to cops? Oh no! Take your hands off of me. Give me my things back. Unbelievable. Anyway, that woman, that's Tina Peters. Remember her? Good news. Tina Peters was found guilty on Friday of obstruction of government operations. This stems from the case where she was accused of secretly videotaping a court proceeding and then lying to a judge about it. So this is a separate criminal charge from what you may best know Tina Peters uh, in regard to. Uh, a separate charge, a separate criminal charge from the seven state felony and three state misdemeanor charges that she also currently still faces for her role in essentially breaking into a secure area of her own office where voting systems are stored at at least what was once her office uh, with with two accomplices. She went in in the middle of the night. One of those accomplices, she allegedly helped create a fake ID for uh, for her to bring him in with her. She then or one of the three did, uh, apparently turned off the security cameras in this secure room where they kept all of the voting systems, and they proceeded to make copies of the hard drives of the Dominion voting system tabulators, which were then later released to the public during her appearance at an election deniers conference that was sponsored by my pillow guy Mike Lindell in South Dakota, if I'm remembering it correctly, following the 2020 election. Well, as AP reports, a former Colorado clerk who has become a hero to election conspiracy theorists was convicted on Friday of a misdemeanor obstruction charge for trying to prevent authorities from taking an iPad that she allegedly used to videotape a court hearing after she was explicitly told not to by the judge in the courtroom last year. The case is separate from Peter's alleged involvement in a security breach of voting machines, AP notes. Jurors found Peters guilty of obstructing government operations, but acquitted her of obstructing a peace officer, according to the Daily Sentinel in Grand Junction. Peters was charged last year after allegedly recording a court hearing involving a subordinate who was also charged in that alleged voting machine breach. So it was a hearing for one of her accomplices that she went to and unlawfully videotaped the proceedings. Breaking the law while in court. Yep. 
Testimony during the two-day trial for Peters last week included that uh, she was repeatedly told investigator that she had repeatedly told investigators that the iPad did not belong to her. So therefore, she could not provide the password to it because it belonged to someone else, someone named Tammy Bailey. Well, of course, if it wasn't her iPad, I understand it belonged to Tammy Bailey. Well, what the heck was, you know, Tina Peters supposed to do about it? Well, her lawyer, as turns out, said that Tammy Bailey was actually an alias used by Tina Peters. Oopsie. Oops. Suggesting that uh, this uh, alias was created for security reasons. Her lawyer said in closing arguments, it is her right not to give out the passcode. It is not a crime. Peters was briefly detained on February 8 of last year. So just over a year ago at a cafe where she was meeting with other people when investigators from the DA's office showed up with a warrant to seize the iPad. Peters gave the iPad to another person. Police were then called. Peters then got between the officers and the man trying to prevent them from taking the iPad. And she was handcuffed and taken outside without uh, warning what you just heard. That was all captured on police body camera video. Officer uh, Vaughn Soderquist testified at her trial last week, quote, she's struggling with us the whole time as we were trying to get the handcuffs on her. Ms. Peters escalated in her behavior, so we removed her to calm things down. Very nice of, of them. Again, luckily for Tina Peters, she was white. Now, you may recall that after all of that, after Tina Peters broke into her own security, uh, her, her own secure computer room in the middle of the night to make unlawful copies of highly sensitive voting equipment, which caused a huge uproar, by the way, that we also reported in the show out here in California regarding the security of uh, California's then pending GOP gubernatorial recall election. It was sponsored by state Republicans. It failed to remove Governor Gavin Newsom at the time. That was that was scheduled just weeks later after uh, this software had been released you know, after it was copied by Tina Peters and a number of California counties used the exact same very sensitive election management system software that Peters had helped expose to the world. So there was a lot of concern about that. So all of this also after she was briefly detained for refusing to turn over her iPad. I mean, Tammy Bailey's iPad. <laughs> after using it to unlawfully videotape a court proceeding this woman was the remember the top election official in Mesa County, Colorado, claiming that she was concerned about election fraud by other people. And she's off on this crime spree. Anyway, after all of that and after the Colorado secretary of state had used her powers to remove Peters as county clerk or at least prevent her from taking part in uh, in the county's elections after all of this and with all of the charges still pending against Tina Peters. Well, she ran last year for Colorado Secretary of State. Happily, the voters of Colorado, well, they knew better. Uh, for that matter, so did the Republican voters in her own county of Mace County, where Peters came in second in the GOP state primary to elect their Secretary of State candidate. Only the best people. 
Peters alleged uh, fraud, by the way, in that primary, but a recount that she paid for, or maybe the dumb pillow guy paid for, I don't know, a recount confirmed that, in fact, she lost. So she was rejected even by Republican voters at the time. A Republican, for the record, a Republican woman named Pam Anderson. No, not that Pam Anderson, but a different Pam Anderson would win the GOP nomination. She would go on to lose to the uh, Democratic incumbent Secretary of State Jenna Griswold last year. But despite all of that and still facing those 10 indictments related to the voting software breach, guess what? Peters is now running to become the leader of Colorado's Republican Party. Because, of course, she's perfect. Why would she not be elected? In the meantime, she is uh, scheduled to be sentenced on this first crime. She'll be sentenced on April 10. The obstruction charge carries a sentence of up to six months in jail and a $750 fine. Peters has pleaded not guilty to the felony charges related to her role in accessing the confidential voting machine data back in 2021. While she was clerk, that trial is scheduled for August when I suspect we'll have to tell this whole story again. (laughs) The uh, subordinate, by the way, whose uh, court hearing that Peters is accused of recording, Belinda Knisley, and another election worker, a woman by the name of Sandra Brown, have both pleaded guilty under deals that require them to testify against Tina Peters. So it's not looking well for her. I do love democracy and I do love accountability stories. Let's take a uh, yeah, get your popcorn. Yeah. Let's take a quick break and we will come back with a few more uh, stories and updates that you may find interesting or maybe not. We'll see. I'm Brad Friedman. You are listening to the Bradcast. Let go of me. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. It is out forever for some people who went to for-profit colleges who closed down on them. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Last week on this program, our friend David Dayen, executive editor of The American Prospect, financial journalist, author, joined us to discuss the uh, corrupt, stolen, and packed right-wing U.S. Supreme Court's hearing, I think it was last week, on whether to allow the Biden administration to forgive up to $20,000 in student loans from federal borrowers making less than $125,000 a year. And the fact that the two different groups of plaintiffs who had oral argument in front of the uh, court last week, a group of GOP-controlled states, 
in one case and two individual borrowers who did not qualify for loan forgiveness. We talked about the fact that neither of those two groups of plaintiffs appear to have any legal standing to sue to block this particular Biden administration policy to forgive these uh, 10 or $20,000 in loans because neither of those plaintiffs have been able to show that they were actually harmed by it in any way. And you have to show injury in order to have legal standing. Now, if we had a legitimate Supreme Court, frankly, both of those cases would be tossed. They probably would not have even made it to the U.S. Supreme Court, but there was a bunch of uh, lower republic, uh, lower court uh, Republican appointees that allowed these cases to move forward at all. But, uh, you know, we got what we got. So who knows whether President Biden's administration will be allowed to simply follow the text of the 2003 HEROES Act, which gives authority specifically to the Department of Education to, quote, waive or modify federal student loans during a national emergency, for example, like the COVID pandemic. Yeah, wave or modify. Pretty clear text. Uh, so we got to wait to see how that goes. But in the meantime, receiving much less notice, as reported by Eric John at the L.A. Times on Monday, for decades, a lesser known program for federal student loan recipients has allowed borrowers to assert a defense to repayment if a school misled them or broke state law. Since the Education Department introduced a formal application in 2015, more than 770,000 people have applied for this uh, repayment, and nearly half a million applications, sadly, were still pending at the end of January, even though they began applying for it way back in 2015. After a modest start at the tail end of the Obama administration, the program then stagnated under former President Trump. Shocking. Under Biden, however, the Education Department has ramped up processing borrower defense applications, overhauled the regulations governing the program, and used it to, to cancel Billions of dollars in debt for people who attended for-profit schools that were accused of defrauding students. You know, like Trump University. It's uh, part of a broader strategy the Biden administration has used to offer debt relief to the borrowers struggling the most with their loans at a time when Biden's plan to cancel up to $20,000 in debt for some borrowers is a non-starter, at least in Congress, where Republicans control the House and are able to pretty much block everything they want with the filibuster in the U.S. Senate. And as that program is at risk of being blocked entirely by the Supreme Court, Biden's administration has tried to bolster the existing web of programs and policies and regulations meant to protect student loan borrowers. The Education Department has forgiven more than $18 billion for borrower defense applicants and people whose schools closed before they finished their degrees, including $5.8 billion for some 560,000 Corinthian college students and $3.9 billion for uh, some 200,000 borrowers who were enrolled at ITT technical institutes. Former students seeking debt forgiveness through borrower defense 
have fared better in the courts than the uh, the plan that is, is being challenged right now by Republicans at the U.S. Supreme Court. In November, a federal judge approved a settlement in a case called Sweet versus Cardona. That's an ongoing class action lawsuit against Education Secretary's Betsy DeVos, that was Trump's secretary, and Miguel Cardona, that's President Biden's secretary. The suit was over delays in borrower defense application processing, Court said uh, Secretary Cardona in a statement on the settlement last November in that case, quote, since day one, the Biden-Harris administration has worked to address longstanding issues relating to the borrower defense process. We are pleased, pleased to have worked with plaintiffs to reach an agreement that will deliver billions of dollars of automatic relief. More than 200,000 loan holders from a list of more than 150 schools will receive more than $6 billion in loan cancellation thanks to that uh, suit, the settlement there, including refunds of what they have paid uh, along with uh, repaired credit reports for these folks. Despite an appeal by three of the schools, a judge denied a motion to postpone the implementation of the settlement for most of those borrowers. Quote, I think the Biden administration recognizes that there is this legal obligation to borrower defense applicants in that there has to be a process. It has to be fair. It has to be timely. That was Eileen Connor, president and director of the Project on Predatory Student Lending. She said people can't be waiting for seven, eight years with their entire life on hold. One such person described in this article by John at the uh, L.A. Times is Sarah Diaz. She was uh, feeling emotional when she checked her her email last Tuesday. She was among the hundreds of Neiman Marcus employees that were laid off last month and had just finished a stressful phone call about her health insurance. As she went through her inbox, she noticed an email from the Department of Education. Diaz had applied to have the government cancel $69,314 in federal student loan debt that she took on in order to attend the Art Institute of Pittsburgh, a for-profit school that closed in 2019. Two and a half years, two education secretaries, and one class action lawsuit later, her application had finally been approved. She said, I almost couldn't believe it. I reread it probably five times. I can only imagine. Uh, before her settlement application was approved, Diaz, who's now 36 years old, spent more than two years waiting for an update on the pending status of that application. The Art Institute of Pittsburgh's online division was not her first choice, but it seemed like the best one at the time. She said it was appealing because it seemed like it was flexible with your with your schedule. If you were someone in my case where you have to work a job or two jobs, you can still work towards that goal of achieving a higher education, she said. Well, she later learned that a coalition of state attorneys general won a $102.8 million settlement against the Art Institute's parent company, the Education Management Corporation, in 2015 over allegations that the company artificially inflated graduation and job placement numbers. They used aggressive recruitment tactics. And in 2019, the Art Institute's 
shut down several of their campuses, as well as the online program that uh, Diaz was enrolled in. In her borrower defense application, Diaz wrote that an art institute admission counselor had told her in early 2012 that 92 percent of graduates get jobs within six months of graduation, that the school would help her secure an internship her senior year that would lead to a high paying job, that her class credits would be fully transfer transferable and that most of her degree costs would be covered by grants and federal student loans. Sadly, most of what she had been told was, well, a lie, didn't pan out. That, according to uh, what she wrote in her uh, application to the education department, she had to take out a loan directly with the school, with the school on top of her federal debt. Top fashion schools, including Parsons School of Design, would not accept her class results mm. after they uh, this other school had shut down. She then struggled to land job interviews after graduating. The school sent postings for jobs with salaries under $25,000, none of which were actually in her field. Quote, it doesn't help that the school has been sued and now closed down, she noted in her application to be refunded. The private for-profit college industry has long been criticized over the practices some schools use to recruit and train students. The quality of the education provided and the financial outcomes of those who attend. A 2017 analysis by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York found that students at for-profit colleges took out more loans and had a higher rate of default than public college students, fueled by the higher costs of for-profit schools and the worse outcomes in the job market that they lie about. State and federal investigators have found evidence that several schools misrepresented the number of graduates who actually find jobs. They use aggressive or misleading recruitment tactics. They target low-income, minority, and other vulnerable students. In 2013, out here in California, then-Attorney General Kamala Harris sued Corinthian Colleges, Inc., accusing them of uh, misrepresenting job placement rates and advertising programs that its schools did not offer. The complaint, citing internal Corinthian College documents, said that the school saw its target demo demographic as, quote, now remember, this is, this is from the school's own documents. This is who they admit that they were targeting as students. Uh, they would target those who, quote, were isolated, impatient, individuals with low self-esteem who have mm. few people in their lives who care about them. Let's go find them. Sign them up. Talk about predatory. Several large for-profit college chains uh, closed in the mid-2010s under pressure from these investigations and legal settlements and declining enrollment, including Corinthian, which filed for bankruptcy in 2015. After debt activists started organizing students to apply for borrower defense, the Obama administration appointed a special master to help organize the process in June of 2015, introduced formal regulations a year later. But the Education Department took a new approach to borrower defense applications under then-President Trump and Education Secretary DeVos. Have I said elections have consequences lately? She chose a former uh, for-profit official, 
uh, actually several, for key roles, including hiring a former DeVry University dean to head the enforcement unit tasked with holding for-profit schools accountable. So you'll not be surprised that not much happened over those four years. She also unsuccessfully tried to block implementation of the 2016 Obama regulations, arguing they were too lenient. They put taxpayers on the hook for canceled debt. Overall, the pace of borrower defense applications slowed to a trickle under DeVos, prompting the uh, Sweet versus DeVos lawsuit. Teresa Sweet, the named uh, plaintiff in that suit, filed for borrower defense in 2016. That same year, her alma mater, the Brooks Institute of Photography in Ventura, California, closed. She said, I never thought having a bachelor's degree would actually limit me in life. Sweet, who is now 48 years old, is an Oakland nursing assistant who said she's been unable to find work in her chosen field of photography with that degree. According to her complaint, Brooks Institute officials allegedly made several misrepresentations to her, including inflating postgraduate job placements, falsely claiming there would be no tuition increases, claiming the school was competitive when it wasn't, telling Sweet that she would have no trouble paying back her loans. She uh, said that it was the worst mistake of her life. It has also been the most costly. She took out $46,000 in federal loans and 140000 in private loans to attend this school. So that's almost $200,000 for this phony school. She estimates her loan, her federal loan balance is now at $80,000. Her private loan balance was close to half a million dollars when she defaulted. She found out the settlement had been approved when she was at home in the bedroom. She rents in Oakland. She screamed after that tears when she learned that her loans would all be canceled. She shared the news with followers on TikToks. TikTok dozens responded that they too had received the good news that their debt was gone. She said, quote, after having years of uh, years worth of feeling like you were taken advantage of getting that redemption at the end finally makes it feel like it was worth it. In the meantime, we wait to find out if the corrupt U.S. Supreme Court will allow other borrowers to have at least some relief. In the meantime, at least when there are Democrats in the White House, some are receiving justice, at least in part. And since Democrats do not seem to spend much time making much noise about it, as frankly they should, well, I thought you should know. Our 1300th Green News Report is next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Now, just to be clear, 
It is not all kittens and rainbows when Democrats are in charge of, uh, of things. Because I'm reminded, when we started the Green News Report back uh, more than 14 years ago now, it was actually Democrats, as I recall, in the Senate who were blocking action on climate change at True. the time. Remember that? Yep. Of course, that was 1,300 episodes ago. A lot has changed since then, as discussed in our latest Green News Report. The ship has reached the shore. World governments reach historic deal to protect the high seas. France to cover parking lots with solar panels. Plus, another Norfolk Southern train derails in Ohio. Has anyone told the Republicans to be upset about it yet? All of those stories and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Thanks to climate change, Los Angeles got a big old snowstorm. California kids made snow bros. Look how cute that is. But then again, California deserved to have some fun because I believe California's only other weather option is fire. <laughs> Correct. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, the Green News Report uh, just finished celebrating our 14th anniversary. We're now in our 15th year. And now, today, we are celebrating our 1300th episode of the Green News Report. Kind of mind boggling. Congratulations. They were all excellent. Except for that one. (laughs) Well, thanks anyway. What do you have for us today? Well, first, huge news. Nearly 200 countries have agreed to a legally binding treaty to help reverse marine biodiversity loss in international waters, which cover half the planet's surface, known as the high seas. After 20 years of negotiations, the treaty marks a major turning point for conserving the ecosystem services of the oceans amid intensifying exploitation from industrial fishing and mining, pollution from chemicals and plastics, and acidification from climate change. The treaty establishes a framework for conserving 30% of the world's land and ocean by 2030. That's part of a deal signed by world governments back in December. This new global treaty addresses issues with the current inadequate patchwork of regulations, which Simon Wormsley of the World Wildlife Fund, in an interview with the UK's Channel 4, says is critical to protect marine animals on migration routes. For instance, whales in the whole of their migratory routes, because they're threatened from when they start traveling to when they finish traveling. So great whales and, and similar similar organisms like turtles, seabirds would be protected along their whole migration route. Which is important because there were some regional packs that might have protected those whales or those turtles in various places, but not for their entire route. Now, that has changed. Exactly. The treaty establishes mechanisms and ground rules to manage marine biodiversity in vast ocean regions that are beyond national jurisdictions, like requiring environmental impact assessments for destructive activities like deep seabed mining and geoengineering experiments to combat climate change. In a major breakthrough, industrialized countries committed to increasing funding to help developing countries build capacity to be able to conserve and manage their biodiversity. A majority of nations must now ratify the treaty for it to come into effect. In the U.S., it's unlikely to garner the required two-thirds vote in the Senate over Republicans' objections. And yet this administration, at least the one in the White House right now, I suspect will 
respect this treaty, even if it's not formally passed. So it took 20 years to get to this point, and then they still had to stay all night, overnight, on Friday, before they could get this thing finished up on Saturday. That's always the way with these major treaties. In other news, another Norfolk Southern train has derailed in Ohio over the weekend, the second such crash in Ohio in just over a month. Officials ordered residents to shelter in place until it was determined that the train carried no hazardous materials. Oh, well, it's all fine then. In the ongoing East Palestine, Ohio derailment disaster, the Environmental Protection Agency has now ordered testing for dioxin, a dangerously toxic byproduct from burning chemicals. Mm. Railroad unions say that rail workers have fallen ill at the Norfolk Southern derailment site, and concerns are also mounting regarding potential chemical exposure for first responders who rushed to the scene from more than 80 regional fire departments. In Minnesota, after state lawmakers passed a law establishing a target of 100% clean electricity by 2040, it may face a legal challenge from neighbor North Dakota. North Dakota regulators say Minnesota's law requiring clean electricity infringes on North Dakota's rights under the Dormant Commerce Clause in the U.S. Constitution what? because it will eventually phase out Minnesota buying North Dakota's dirty coal electricity. Good luck with that, North Dakota. Finally, France has enacted a new law mandating that all large parking lots be topped with solar canopies and streamlines efforts to install solar panels on already disturbed land alongside highways. It's all an effort to cut fossil fuel use and meet France's ambitious climate targets. The solar parking lots alone are expected to generate as much electricity as 10 nuclear power plants, but for a fraction of the cost of building just one nuclear plant. Wow, and that's something you have been calling for for at least 15 years that we've been doing this Green News Report. I guess they heard you in France. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been your 1300th Green News Report. Thank you very much, Desi, for all 1,300. Well, yeah. 1,299. But well, we won't talk go. about that one. <laughs> uh, my thanks to our producer, Desi Doyne, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download at any time for free at bradblog.com. That is made possible by those of you who have long supported our work at bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you. You can drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks, Twitters, and Mastodons, I am the Brad Blog. Desi is Green News Report. Yes. That's it. We'll see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Stuff happens, right? I mean, who could have thought that in these modern times of digital monitoring of everything, something as massive as a freight train could become a toxic fireball rolling undetected and unslowed into an Ohio town. But a Norfolk Southern train did just that, derailing in East Palestine and contaminating the air, water, land, and families with tons of cancer-causing chemicals. Gosh, exclaimed Norfolk Southern. Gosh, exclaimed the Ohio governor. Gosh, exclaimed the U.S. Transportation Chief. Gosh, exclaimed the GOP Chair of the Rail Transportation Committee. This is a terrible, unexpected accident, and we're all appalled by it. 
Only, all of these officials knew full well that this disaster would happen, though they didn't know exactly where. Indeed, far from unexpected, there are more than a thousand preventable train derailments in the U.S. every year. Norfolk Southern had another one only days after the one in Ohio. And these things don't just happen. They are caused by the profiteering greed of the monopolistic industry's top executives and rich investors. While Norfolk's boardroom elites have been pocketing record profits in recent years, they've used armies of lobbyists and multimillion-dollar political donations to kill safety protections that would prevent such a disastrous record. To cut costs and jack up profits, railroad bosses have rigged the rules to run trains that are absurdly long, go too fast, carry undisclosed toxics in weak tanker cars, have no fire detectors, use outmoded braking systems, and have as few as one crew member on board. One. This is Jim Hightower saying, Norfolk's derail train was made to derail. It pulled 149 cars stretching nearly two miles down the track, and it was ill-equipped to detect fires and other problems. This disaster was not an accident. It was mandated by the corporate and government officials now professing outrage. The Hightower Radio Lowdown is made possible by you subscribers to Jim Hightower's Lowdown on Substack. Find us at jimhightower.substack.com.